if that was too long for you, I just need to let you in on a secret. That's been the vision of what we want here. <laughs> we don't want to be a church where the band sings and you sing out there and I preach and we go home. This is, we're a family. And I know Sunday mornings aren't the best place because we're in rows, so there's not a lot of conversation and engaging back and forth. But this is the one opportunity we have to do that. And we want more of that. And if you ladies get tired, sit down. I'm just, just a heads up, and I got in trouble for years ago for saying this a lot. If you don't like this, this isn't going away. Okay? So uh, either learn to like it or... I don't know. I don't want to tell you to go somewhere else because I don't want you to go anywhere else. Uh, and then I've got to say this. Uh, and those were all great testimonies. If I ever want a car, ask Jim to help pray for me. Um, but as Melissa was talking, she said she's heard the whispers of the devil tell her that if she was to go away, nobody would care. It wouldn't matter. Nobody would miss her. Can we just, if you've ever had that thought go through your head, would you stand up? The devil has no new tricks under the sun. He has no new lies under the sun. It's not that everything that you're facing, everybody else in this room is facing, but I promise you somebody else in this room is facing. And the beautiful thing about being a church that's vulnerable and will actually talk about these vulnerable things is the devil reminds us that we are unworthy and Jesus reminds us, hey, that might be true. I've given you value. You're created in my, in, in my image. And here's the deal. You're not alone. When we confess, when I hear that, I'm encouraged. I shouldn't be. I'm encouraged like, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. That here's these lies. So I say to you, Melissa, you will be missed. I don't know if your husband would miss you, but your pastor will. I'm just kidding. <laughs> hmm, you're valuable. All right. Well, and that was fun. I don't want to, I just want to keep doing that. Um, but I want us to open the word, Matthew 5. Today we're looking at the eighth and final beatitude. Again, I had no intentions of starting our study in Matthew and then taking so much time here in these 12 verses. Uh, we have camped here for several weeks, but it has become abundantly clear that these beatitudes are not just an intro to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but rather its necessary framework in understanding and desiring obedience to Jesus' Sermon in full, right? We have said a lot about the Beatitudes. There's been some really general statements we've made, and I want to try to condense them real quick and remind us one more time before we launch into the rest of Jesus' Sermon next Sunday. But here's the top five, I think. I don't want us to forget as we move forward. Number one, these Beatitudes are character traits necessary for every Christian. To follow Jesus, we must submit to his rule over us and all of these beatitudes are necessary for true submission to Christ. The second thing is we are meant to manifest all of these traits. 
These, this is not a smorgasbord for us to pick and choose from on which ones we feel like is our greater strengths. As we've discovered, Jesus has been very intentional here in the order, I believe, of these Beatitudes, because I think each one is building on the next. I'll show you that in just a moment. There is a natural progression that we must not ignore. All of us have been made for all of these Beatitudes. Number three, the Beatitudes do not come natural to us. These traits are born of God, not of ourselves. So we must depend on the Spirit of God within us to give us the desire for more of Him and to submit to the work that He is doing to build up these traits in us. We can't work these up. As fun as that was, worship songs don't build up these traits in us. It's the Spirit of God at work through the Word of God that begins to give us the desire and to build these things up within us. Left to ourselves and our own power, we will produce none of these in and through ourselves. Number four, the Beatitudes are more about being someone rather than doing something. We get into the some things next week and for the next several weeks. Jesus is going to give us a lot of things to do, but he starts here with just being. And this might be the most crucial for us to understand as we move forward in our attempt to read and obey the teachings of Jesus over the next three chapters, because it is impossible to please God with our lives absent from these beatitudes. These first 12 verses of chapter 5 is doing is Jesus doing the heart work in his followers so they can in return do the legwork of obedience that he is about to teach them in the remainder chapters of 5, 6, and 7. These beatitudes establish a solid foundation for us as we move forward with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And then number five, Jesus, again, he's, I think he's been strategic in his delivering of these beatitudes. Each one seems to be building on the next, and we've covered the first seven beatitudes, and we've seeing the natural progression one to the next, because Jesus starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit, realizing that we, when we come into the presence of God and his holiness, we're reminded of our utter helplessness and spiritual bankruptcy before him. It's when we come into the presence of God's holiness that we're reminded of our unholiness. It's in the poorness of spirit that we realize that we have no righteousness of our own. We realize face to face with God and his righteousness that we are nothing and we have nothing of value to offer him. Not only that, but then we mourn because of that unholiness, because of that sin, not only in our lives, but that sin all around us. We weep and we grieve. The Holy Spirit brings us into the presence of a holy God and reveals the blackness of our own hearts, and we weep. And it's only after gaining a proper view of ourselves through the lens of God's holiness and our sin that we become meek and surrender to God's will above our own. Nobody cares for us more than Jesus cares for us. Nobody has done for us what Jesus has done for us, so we lay down our lives for him. And we start to hunger and thirst for more of his righteousness as we run from our sin to his goodness. We are desperately in need of something outside of ourselves to fill us and satisfy us, and we find that satisfaction ultimately in Jesus Christ. So how could we not be merciful? Right? If all of that's true and there's this progression happening, 
How can we not be merciful? How could we not give away what we have so graciously received? Of course, it will drive us to pureness of heart as we become focused and our hearts become pledged to the kingdom of God and our hearts become undivided towards him. And just as God has given us peace, we strive to be peacemakers in all things. As we chase after Christ and our hearts become pledged more to his heart, we will only desire the things of God. And we will desire to increasingly reflect more of the things of God. That's just that natural progression that I don't know if I've ever experienced before in studying the Beatitudes to know that Jesus was intentional in the way he laid these things out. It doesn't make sense to start with, hey, be a peacemaker if you don't understand that you were a peace breaker and Jesus came and brought peace to us. He breathed peace into us. So when he says, be a peacemaker... If we are under his submission, we have no excuse. We cannot receive from him and then deny others. So he starts by reminding us of how wicked we are and how good he is and how redeemed we are and how blessed we are so that we can bless others. Hmm. And so now we come to our eighth and final beatitude, which does seem perhaps a little out of place in this natural progression, but it's not because Jesus says in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus bookmarks the first beatitude and the eighth and final beatitude with the promise that the kingdom of God belongs to us. And then breaking from custom of his teaching so far about the beatitudes, he does something he hasn't done yet. He seems to give us two more verses that seem to be commentary for this last beatitude. In verse 11, he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And at first glance at this beatitude, it seems a bit ridiculous. In fact, if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, it is ridiculous. Jesus telling us to be happy or find delight in persecution. No, thank you. Right? I am accustomed to my American Christianity. Thank you very much. I do not want to suffer. Doesn't seem logical at all, especially if we have a misinterpretation of what it means to be persecuted. Jesus is not saying we should rejoice at the pursuit of persecution, but rather rejoice when we are persecuted. <laughs> and it might seem like just a subtle difference, but it's not. We are not going to leave here this morning looking for opportunities to be persecuted. And that's not what Jesus is asking us to do. I know some Christians think that that's their mission in life, to cause problems so that they can be persecuted. It's not. 
For example, you can't be a horrible employee and then scream persecution when you're fired for not doing your job. You can't be a horrible friend and then cry persecution when you're blocked on social media. Horrible drive-through service at McDonald's is not you being persecuted. It's you being at McDonald's. <laughs> Can I just give a witness? I've, they've never got my order right. Not once. That's not persecution. It feels like it in the moment when you've got to go back around. Or, God forbid, you've got to get out of your car and walk in. We feel like Jesus is on the cross in that moment. It's not. It's not. Jesus seems to be saying that we don't have to go looking for persecution, but rather if we are his true followers, persecution will eventually come looking for us. And this is a bit convicting. Because I believe the true church of God should be being persecuted even today, even in America, and we're not. And again, the temptation is, well, let's go stir up some persecution. That's not what Jesus wants us to do. We do, we do damage to the kingdom of God when we go out trying to stir up controversy. Friends, standing on the word of God these days is controversy enough. It's not that we need to go stir anything up. We just need to defend what we believe in a loving way. We don't have to go looking for persecution. It'll come looking for us. And when it finds us, if we understand the why of it, we can rejoice, Jesus says. So what's the why? Well, in verse 10 of Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for what? righteousness sake. Notice it doesn't say blessed are those who are persecuted because they are objectionable or blessed are those who are persecuted for, their, for being religious fanatics. You don't get to stand on a street corner screaming to hell with everyone that doesn't agree with your religious view and then after receiving a snarl, declare persecution. Notice it doesn't say blessed are those who are persecuted for the political cause. Don't shout persecution because someone honks at your Biden bumper sticker or makes fun of your Make America Great red cap. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. There's nothing righteous about Biden or Trump. For Christ's sake, not your political view, not your view on a pandemic. Got to wear a face mask. I'm being persecuted. No, you're not. It's not even in my notes. I don't know why I'm saying these things. <laughs> Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Verse 11 gives us more insight to this righteousness or what this righteousness sake looks like. Verse 11 says, blessed are you when others revile you or persecute you or utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Jesus says. Jesus is describing persecution here that comes our way for no other reason than we are his sons and daughters. In ancient times, when there was this overtaking of a kingdom, when there was this unthroning of a king, not all, 
often not only did they kill the king, but they had to kill all of his family because they were afraid that his family would rise up and try to take the throne. And that illustration, I think, fits perfectly with where we're going this morning because living a life that reflects the Beatitudes is an invitation for persecution. You would think the world would applaud such a person, but it won't, or at least it won't long because eventually the Beatitudes will convict them of their unrighteousness. That's why the gospel rule that we talk about all the time around here is really a double-edged sword. Doing as Jesus has done for us is such a beautiful reflection of Christ in this world. But Christ in this world was crucified. And it's not like Jesus has been trying to hide this fact in small prints in the Bible. It's very clear. In John chapter 15... Jesus says, if the world hates you, remember, it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you're no longer a part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world. So naturally, the world's going to hate you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not, this was John 13, right? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally, they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all of this to you because of me. For they have rejected the one who sent me. And there lies the key to being persecuted for righteousness sake. This persecution we experience is not because of what we say or do, but rather because of who our persecutor is. They have rejected the God that we represent, therefore they reject us. Have you ever stopped to think, who would want to persecute Jesus? I mean, he was... He was kind, he was giving, he was a miracle worker, he was a sin-forgiving servant king. He raised the dead, he healed the sick, he fed the poor. Who would want to hurt a man like that? I mean, this woman caught in the the act of adultery and they were going to kill her, and Jesus says no, and he showed her mercy in that moment. Who would want that kind of man dead? It's an interesting conversation because one could argue that it was the church that crucified him. And I, I mean, sinners, just study the New Testament. Sinners seem to flock to him while the religious leaders schemed to kill him. I don't have anything else to say about that, except for perhaps a small lesson for us here is that persecution doesn't always come from outside the church. In short, in answering the question, who would want to Who would want to hurt a man like Jesus? In short, I just think the answer is this. Sinners. Sinners. Jesus reminds sinners of their sin, and that is offensive to us sinners. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, 
Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. That's good news for those seeking salvation from their lostness. But what about those who refuse to admit they are lost? It's not good news at all. All Jesus does for them in this moment is remind them of their lostness that they're trying to ignore. And this tension leads to division. And again, nothing There's a clicking up here on the piano. I don't know if there's something that needs to be muted. That's two weeks in a row, guys. I, I don't know, man. It's like guys like just quit preaching and let's sing it somewhere. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's done. This tension leads to division. Again, nothing Jesus doesn't prepare us for because in Luke. 12. Listen, if you just think Jesus is this warm, fuzzy, you've probably never read Luke 12, because here's what Jesus says. I have come to set the world on fire. You mean with the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah, sort of. I wish it were already burning. I I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me, and I am under a heavy burden until it is accomplished. Do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth. And all of the American church says yes. And Jesus says no. No, I have come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart. Three in favor of me, two against. Or two in favor and three against. Father will be divided against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law here it is. This is why we struggle. Your next holiday, when you're regretting the, this, this moment that you're going to be with your in-laws, say, thank you, Jesus. This is all on you. Because Jesus says, listen, this is going, I'm going to cause problems between in-laws. And Jesus, don't misunderstand here. Jesus isn't intentionally taking joy and causing friction and division among human relationships. He just knows this, that his name demands a response in the heart of people. And some will repent and believe, and others will reject and ignore. And as a result, there will always be tension. And tension among broken people eventually leads to someone suffering. It's just how we're built. That's why the Apostle Paul did not mix words in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, when he says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So let me give you an example of how this works with the gospel rule. We... We forgive someone for hurting us because forgiven people forgive people, right? Sounds good. We benefit from letting it go. There's a burden lifted from us. The individual that has hurt us benefits because they are released from any guilt that they might or might not have been feeling. But we say, listen, you hurt me. I forgive you. It's, 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 it's gone So they benefit from it. The only person that does not benefit 
is the individual that looks bad in light of our forgiveness because they refuse to forgive. So what do they do? They hate us for making them look bad, so they do what they can to make us look bad so they can feel better about themselves. You ever wonder, why would somebody... It's because when we start to display, reflect the character of God, maybe even good people around us that we have a great relationship with, it makes them look bad. If we're willing to forgive someone that's hurt us and yet they're unwilling to forgive someone that's hurt them, there is some conviction there. And you don't have to say it, you don't have to think it, you don't have to look it, but at some point the devil, hey, they think they're better than you because they forgave and you didn't. And there's friction, and you did nothing to cause it. There's, you're not even engaged in that relationship. They're just close to you, and you, you do life together, and they saw that you forgave as Christ has forgiven you, and there's joy in, in that relationship, and yet here they are standing off to the side, and they're bitter and jealous because of what you have brought to light in their own life. By the way, verse 11 explains what persecution looks like. Blessed are those uh, when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. See, when we, we, when we think of persecution, we think of jail. Or worse, we think of beheadings or some kind of martyrdom, which is certainly the case. That is persecution. But according to Jesus, it can also look like this. Gossip, slander, lies about you, co-workers mocking you around the, the water cooler tomorrow. Or maybe not laughing at the jokes that they tell that they think you should laugh at. Or maybe because when they all go out afterwards and do what they do, you choose to go home to your family. And it just does something. It doesn't set right with them. And so they're making fun of you or they're mocking you. And here's what. It's all persecution. It's all persecution. And Jesus says when it happens for his sake, we're blessed. (laughs) And we can rejoice. And this isn't some just way out there principle. It is displayed in scriptures. We see the apostles in Acts chapter 5, right? They are beaten for Christ's sake. And it says in in, in Acts chapter 5 verse 41, the apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. What? What? When we understand the why of our suffering, we will rejoice that we are counted worthy to suffer in Jesus' name, or we will need to repent because we are the reason for our suffering. It's the only two responses. Rejoice because we, Jesus counts us worthy, or repent because we've messed things up. And we've caused a stir that is not for righteousness' sake. Persecution for Christ's sake is evidence that we are citizens of God's kingdom. And Jesus reminds us that any suffering in his name is worth it. Look at verse 12, almost done. Jesus says, be happy about it. Be very glad for a great award, reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So Jesus says, listen, you get to suffer with those that have suffered before you. What an honor. And with your last breath here, you will wake up in the presence of God, knowing that everything we suffered here was worth it. 
We'll never believe that on this side of eternity fully. But one breath on that side of eternity, we'll get it. Because I believe what Paul says in Romans 8.18. You hear me quote this all the time. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared. Look at me. I don't take lightly. There's people in this room that have suffered greatly. And Paul doesn't take that lightly either. But the truth of the matter is, no matter how heavy your suffering has been, it doesn't compare to what's coming. As I was writing this last part of this sermon at about 8 o'clock last night, there's an old hymn that came to my mind, and so I'm trying to Google it, I'm trying to find it, and there's another hymn apparently named the same thing, and I'm like, that's not the one I'm looking for. So I had to go all the way back to this Gaither video, and I'm like, that's it, that's the one we used to sing all the time when I was a kid. And as I was writing this, and the Spirit reminded me of the chorus of the song that says, it will be worth it all just to see his face when he claims us for his own. Then 10 million years to sing amazing grace. It'll be worth it all when we get home. We need the Beatitudes, because they give us a portrait of Jesus. And it gives us a portrait of who we are becoming in Jesus. I'm going to close with this. No one sympathized with spiritual beggars more than Jesus. No one grieved over the sin and the brokenness of this world more than Jesus. No one was more meek in submitting to the Father's will than Jesus. No one hungered and thirsted for righteousness more than Jesus. No one has shown mercy more than Jesus. No one has sought peace between God and man or between man and man more than Jesus. No one suffers unjust persecution and evil against themselves more than Jesus does. When we look at the Beatitudes, we see Jesus. When we see the Beatitudes, we see who we are becoming in Christ. And friends, that should make us happy. For in those moments, we are reminded that we are truly blessed. Amen? Father, what a sweet spirit in this place today. And yet I feel much conviction not because I'm not out looking for persecution more. I feel conviction because I'm not experiencing conviction or persecution more. I'm concerned that 
there are moments that we, that we remain silent as the church in fear of persecution. I'm afraid there's times as the church that we run away from persecution. God, may we not seek it. God, may we not hide from it. May we just allow you in and through us to do what you want to do in and through us. God, on the good days, we'll praise you. And on the bad days, we'll praise you. When people hug us, we'll praise you. When people want to throw rocks at us, we'll praise you. Because God, in everything we do, we want you to be glorified. So thank you, so thank you, so thank you, so thank you for the promise here that everything we suffer here, it's worth it. That there's a great reward coming for us. One day we'll get to stand face to face and see our Creator, and see our Lord, and see our Savior. For the rest of eternity, we will get to stand with every tribe and every nation and every tongue, and we will get to lift our voices in celebration of an eternal king. Thank you. So we're going to end our time today being reminded of this great reward. God, may our hearts be encouraged. God, if there needs to be some conviction in our hearts this morning, may your spirit do that as well. You do the work that we need as your kingdom people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.